This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEEDTECH, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEEDTECH. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, College of Public Health, and the director of the NITEC Special Pathogens Research Network. For those of you not yet familiar with NITEC, our mission is to increase the capability of the United States public health and healthcare system to safely and effectively manage individuals with suspected and confirmed special pathogens in cooperation with the CDC and funded by ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Thank you all so much for joining me today to have this really important conversation about healthcare worker resiliency and vaccine hesitancy. We're almost two solid years into this pandemic and no time like the present to have such an important conversation. Before we jump into the conversation, maybe you could each give me a little bit of background about yourselves and what you've been working on during this pandemic. So hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Jacinda Abdul-Mutakabir. I also go by Dr. Jam. So I'm currently an assistant professor at Loma Linda University School of Pharmacy and the Loma Linda University School of Medicine. Currently, I serve as the lead clinician and lead pharmacist in the COVID-19 vaccine clinics that we have targeted towards minoritized communities within the San Bernardino County area. We've been doing vaccine clinics for the past eight months or so now, and we vaccinated over 2,000 minoritized individuals. Like my counterpart stated, we're going steadfast with our vaccination efforts, and now we've switched our gears to the booster vaccines, and yeah, that's what I'm doing with the COVID-19 work. I'm uh, Dr. Jasmine Marcellin. I'm an infectious diseases physician at University of Nebraska Medical Center. I have been doing a lot of clinical infectious disease work during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, as well as quite a bit of advocacy in our community, advocating for equitable vaccine access, testing access, and everything that our community, particularly our, our minoritized community in Omaha, needs to be able to get through this pandemic. Hi, and I'm Precious Davis. I'm a nurse case manager at Nebraska Medical Center. I've been in nursing for over 20 years. So what I've been doing during this pandemic, along with Dr. Marcellin, again, is advocating for those and marginalized communities to be vaccinated. Also, we have started giving out vaccines in our clinic, and we are now on booster vaccines at the time. So we are pretty busy, as you could imagine. That's great. Vaccines are definitely at the front of all of our minds. So I thought maybe we could start by talking a little bit about how to approach a vaccine-hesitant patient. You know, these vaccines have come online so quickly. It's unlike anything we've ever seen before. Amazing feat of science, but oftentimes it's challenging to message that. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach a patient who might be concerned about the vaccine or unsure about the vaccine and how you initiate that conversation? I would like to jump in first and just go back to the topic of vaccine hesitancy. It's one that I I struggle with a lot because it places the term vaccine hesitancy places a lot of onus on the, the individuals themselves being inherently wrong or or something is bad about them having questions. And I like to reframe it in the context of questions and concerns like you described 
There are some of my colleagues, like Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith and Dr. Kimberly Manning, that use the term vaccine deliberation. And ultimately, it's really recognizing that people are on a continuum of different attitudes towards vaccines that may range from some resistance and questions and concerns to being influenced by misinformation to just, you know, wanting to learn a little bit more to really they are ready, but they just need to know that things are going to be okay. Right. And we have to be able to meet people wherever they are on that continuum and going into it, thinking about it in terms of vaccine hesitancy, I think places a little bit of a block or a barrier in between us and the people that we're having those conversations with, because we're assuming that they have negative attitudes towards vaccines when really all they may have is questions. That makes total sense. I mean, it just goes back to the conversations that we've been having this entire pandemic about how important the trusted messenger is, how important science communication is how important it is to bring information to people to be able to allow them to make informed decisions at their own speed. When you encounter a patient who has questions or has concerns, has not decided on getting a vaccine yet, how do you initiate that conversation with them? How do you make space for their concerns or their questions? And what is the role of the provider in that conversation? For me, I think that it really stems from empathy. Empathy is one thing that I really try to, to govern myself on. And being a clinician of color, that ends up being something that I'm very intimately acquainted with. So I'm able to understand, especially when working with minoritized communities, what may be barriers to vaccinations there. I come from a Black family. I'm a Black woman. So I'm able to talk and speak about those experiences and to really cater the information that I provide to those experiences. So I talk about the number of minoritized individuals that were included in the clinical trials. I talk about how this differs from maybe the Tuskegee experiment. My grandmother lived during the Tuskegee experiment, so she, she definitely, you know, understood that and wanted to ensure that that was not the reality that she was facing. I'm able to talk to individuals at the vaccine clinics and tell them, you know, this isn't placebo. This is actually the vaccine because these are real things that people in minoritized communities have had to deal with. So it's important that we as healthcare professionals are able to speak to this and to really just streamline our information towards this, but more importantly, to approach the conversations from that perspective of empathy, understanding where the lack in confidence may stem from and being able to tailor our information towards that. It's interesting that you talk about um, your own personal experiences and, and your the way you communicate that to patients. I've I've heard a lot of stories from providers around a new sort of environment in which they're expected to share their own personal journey with deciding, with deciding about the vaccine, about what they've chosen to do, about their own health care decision making. And, and that's a place we haven't really been before in such a big way. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with sharing your own health care information in those conversations? I can speak to that as a nurse case manager. When patients call into the clinic, they stop by. I'm usually the first person outside of them being room that they see. So they have a lot of questions. So personally, I struggled with getting the vaccine as well. Like Dr. Jam mentioned, past historical things that have happened to minoritized communities. 
And then one thing I don't think a lot of providers talk about is the spiritual aspect of people getting vaccines. I know a big thing that always on social media, especially for religious groups, is you're getting the mark of the beast. So that was something that I struggled with coming from those families that this is the mark of the beast. You can't do anything if you don't get your vaccine, you're getting the chips. That is a huge factor for a lot of minoritized communities, especially the black community. But I got the vaccine and I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't want that stigma. I didn't want to address that. But when patients, I felt comfortable telling patients I did, and they were more acceptable to me sharing that story versus their doctor or their nurse practitioner. So again, piggybacking off of Dr. Jam is that empathy. It's not making them feel feel bad for not wanting to get the vaccine. In the real world, yes, we want them all vaccinated. We do. But for some, we still struggle. I even struggle with getting the booster. So just having those real conversations with patients and those in our communities is so key. And getting the background of why, really understanding where they're coming from and not making assumptions or biases. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you don't feel comfortable sharing your personal information about whether or not you're vaccinated, sharing information about the struggle and the decision-making process that you or your family members experienced and the challenges around those conversations can be really important. In most of our healthcare settings, we have to essentially show, wear that badge that shows that, that we've been vaccinated in order to safely come into work. And so you're sort of putting it out there by default, but the story behind it can be just as important to the patient, it seems like. So can you tell us a little bit more about those methods that you're talking about for communicating with your patients beyond just sharing your personal story? What are the types of information that are that's important to share? What are the the approaches that you use for different patients depending on where they are in their decision-making process? I see a motivational interviewing in here and motivational interviewing as Dr. Marcella knows that is my thing. I love it. I love putting patients in the position to speak, have a voice, because they so desperately need to have their voices heard in any capacity. So sitting back and eliciting those questions from them. What do you know about the vaccine? Where are you getting your information from? And allowing them to speak and share their experiences, their family history, but just letting them decide for themselves at the end of the conversation and being okay with whatever that decision is. Not really strong arming them, but again, presenting the information, presenting that data. Of course, they want to see the data. We know sometimes data and numbers can be skewed, but they have to see it in real time. And we need to have that available for them when they come into our spaces to say, hey, here's the numbers. Here is what this population looks like. Here is the red or the dotted out population that hasn't been vaccinated. These are the illnesses. These are the comorbidities. They need to see that real-time data in order to believe it. We had a mother and a son that passed away from COVID-19 last year, and it hit our community really hard because he was a comedian. The mom, they were really out there in the community doing different types of things. And I think the African-Americans in our community that did not believe that this was a real disease or a real virus, they believed when those two people passed away and it really hit hard and it really came full circle for us. So 
again, just putting it back into their hands, letting them share their experience, letting them vet how they feel about it. And again, not being made to feel bad about whatever their decision is. I'd love to hear a little more about the concept of motivational interviewing. I think it's probably new to a lot of our listeners. When you think about the sort of setting up for a motivational interview, can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like? How do you initiate the conversation? Always open-ended questions. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? Asking for clarification. Well, what does that mean to you? How do you interpret that? What are your feelings behind that? What are your thoughts? What are your emotions? And not so much speaking at them. I think a lot of times as providers, our scientists, whatever we are, whatever role we're playing, we have this information and we want to give it to them versus let them give us that information, what their experience is, what they think they know, what have they Googled, what did they get from Facebook, what did they get from Instagram that makes them decide if they want to get vaccinated or not, or any issue on life, period. It seems like every social media platform has some hack that you can do for your life, but that motivational interviewing piece is just, again, putting it back in their hands, asking those open-ended questions and letting it flow. Being authentic, because the patient, they're looking to see if you're, you really care, if you're just trying to get them out of your space and away from them so you can get on to your next patient. So taking that time, really, and getting those real, genuine responses from them versus speaking to them, that's a huge piece for me for motivational interviewing. And I think I would add to that, just trying to get a sense, using those open-ended questions, trying to get a sense of what's that individual's values, what is important to them, and always linking back the conversation to what's important to them. Going in with expectations or assumptions of what a person's needs may be or what their concerns may be could be really detrimental to the conversation as a whole. And so starting off with, you know, if you know that this person has said no to a vaccine, starting off with just what are your thoughts on it? And then let them talk. And something that I learned from my colleagues early in this process was that it's not all the time that people want us to start giving them statistics, right? And it's okay and even important for us to ask permission to share, may I share these data with you? Or may I share my personal experience with you? And, and let that be a dialogue rather than a one-way street, that has been very helpful. And for me, I, I really enjoy getting to know an individual and understanding what makes them tick and letting them know that I have zero expectations of trying to convince them one way or another. What I would like to do is help them walk on this journey and help them to understand whatever it is that they may still have questions about to provide that for them. But at the end of the day, they are a grown adult and they can make their own decisions. I just want their decisions to be based on reliable information. Do you think that the mandates around vaccination from employers and things like that have hindered some of those conversations or put up barriers to people's decision-making processes? I think that it becomes a matter of we can't allow for the mandates to take away from providing the, the very necessary knowledge. 
in terms of the facts when we think about vaccinations. I think that a lot of times, and maybe this is just American culture, that we feel as though when we force people to do things, they, you know, it's, it's done. Okay, we tell them they have to do it. They're going to lose their jobs if they don't do it. Let's put a pin in that. But I think that we have to be honest about the fact that we don't want that negative connotation to be associated with vaccines. Every time someone thinks about a COVID-19 vaccine, they don't think about the fact that they got it, you know, to keep themselves safe, to keep their families safe. They don't think about what it is that vaccines provide to them. What they think about is I only got it because I was forced because I was going to lose my job otherwise. It's my fear that thought process is going to translate to other disease states so that when people think about vaccines, that's what they're going to think about. You know, I was forced to do this. And when we think about vaccine-preventable diseases, a lot of times minoritized communities are those that perish more so because they do not receive vaccines. So it's my fear that with the mandates placing individuals in that position of being forced, we will see those attitudes um, in terms of vaccinations, people getting, you know, vaccines or maybe straying away from vaccines out of fear, out of the need to maintain some type of self-decision making because they feel as though their decision has been taken out of their hands. So with me taking heed to this, and I'm sure Dr. Marcellin can also attest to this, one thing that I try to do is to make sure that I continue to provide the necessary education that I continue to conduct the motivational interviewing. I haven't wavered in those things because I don't want individuals to feel like I'm just here because the mandates are in place. No, I'm here because I genuinely want to see you be vaccinated. So I think that's important that we as the healthcare professionals on the other side don't lose sight of what it is that we are to the vaccination process. That makes total sense. So the consistent messaging, the open lines of communication, they have to happen in tandem. And hopefully then that process actually overtakes the need for mandates to begin with. So we've heard a lot of stories about providers in the healthcare settings dealing with so many patients coming in and they're struggling with caring for unvaccinated patients. And given the conversation that we've had so far about this continuum of decision making and not putting the burden on the unvaccinated patient, but discussing this as a process, could you talk a little bit about how you support coworkers, colleagues, providers who are struggling with this challenge of their feelings of resentment or sadness for people who are not vaccinated? We have in all areas of health, there are preventable conditions that individuals who make choices to not take those preventive measures end up with consequences where they are then being treated by healthcare professionals. This is not something that is novel to COVID-19. And while there is a uniqueness for this generation of healthcare workers, all of us who are in this pandemic right now, in that this, for many of us, is our first pandemic that we have experienced, and it is very exhausting and at times very demoralizing to be in this over and over and over again when we have multiple layers of protection that people do have at their disposal. I think the ultimate foundation is that our, the reason why we have gone into, into health professions is to help people who can't help themselves or 
who choose not to help themselves and still have to live with those consequences. So I just try to, I try to exude empathy for the individuals who we may be caring for who are unvaccinated and this could have been prevented. Because at, honestly, at that point, how is my resentment going to help that patient, right? It's the same approach to having a conversation with somebody who doesn't want to take their insulin or doesn't want to take some other type of medication. And they have questions and there are reasons behind those. And I think those require some exploration. And then to help my colleagues who may be frustrated and are exhausted and are struggling, I think it's okay for them to take a break. And if it's possible for them to have a break from the constant barrage of patients who are sick and dying and who are unvaccinated and this could have been prevented, we need the healthcare system needs to take care of us, needs to take care of its workers and recognize that we are not robots and that potentially the very reason why these healthcare workers are feeling this amount of struggle and are feeling so overwhelmed is because of the tremendous amount of empathy and caring that has to go into caring for each individual patient. And that takes a lot out of an individual and it is compounded when you can see that this was preventable. And so there's there is empathy that needs to come from the healthcare system in taking care of its workers. There's empathy that needs to come from the healthcare workers in taking care of the patients. And then there's empathy that needs to come from the community in recognizing that, you know, we are all in this together. And if the community members do their part in taking those preventive measures, then we can all have an opportunity to release some of this exhaustion that we're all feeling. That's a great point. I mean, it's pretty normal situation for a healthcare worker, right, where you interact with a patient who has made choices that have impacted their health or not been able to do something and that not being able to do that thing has impacted their health. And so this is not a new experience, but that exhaustion and that compassion fatigue that's all leading to this compassion deficit in healthcare workers in a very real and acute way. Do you think the idea we talked about before that motivational interviewing could actually work on healthcare workers, could open a dialogue for healthcare workers who are feeling that compassion deficit? Oh, yes, most definitely. I had actually, in all transparency, planned a wellness day for our coworkers because a lot of us were here nonstop while some coworkers had the opportunity to work from home. There were some of us that did not have that opportunity and we were here. And working with our population of HIV patients, things were being traumatized over again. So we got those onslaught of calls and we were overloaded and it was it was something. But I planned a wellness day for our coworkers. I actually was at home I called in that day because I was not feeling well and I was at home having my own wellness day to take care of my own mental health, which I know that we will get to. But I know that we see each other going through our emotions, coming to work, but we have life still going on outside of work. So I could, you know, talk to that coworker that's angry 
and say, hey, what's the deal? What's the problem? What do we need to do? Do we need to step outside for a minute? Do we need to walk down the block on our lunch break? How about you don't even work the floor today? I'll work the floor for you today. How about you answer the phones? You know, to offset that load for them and say, hey, what's going on? You know, what can I do to help you? And I think that was a piece that was missing in the beginning of the pandemic. But as we progressed on, I think some of us have become more comfortable with each other, with sharing what's going on in our personal life and our experiences, because we are not exempt. We are not exempt from the trials that everyone else face, our patients face. But we have to take care of each other first. That was a huge learning curve for me to learn within this last month, actually. Um, we don't we don't teach trainees to check on each other, um, how to talk to their cops about their mental health or their well-being or even their physical health. It's it's only been very recently that we sort of encourage people to stay home if they're not feeling well, right? Are there strategies we can use in school, um, nursing school, in medical school to prepare trainees to to help their colleagues to support each other? I went to pharmacy school, so, <laughs> but I'll interject here. For me, of course, in professional school, you don't really talk about the need to take care of yourself. And I'll give just my personal events. I went through very intense training programs and it kind of came to a point where I had to, I had no choice but to take care of myself. And for me, that looked like therapy. So I've been in therapy for the last three years. And I think that also looks like transparency with my students. So I teach in the pharmacy school, I teach in the med school, and I'm always very honest with them. And I tell them that, you know, I go to therapy. It's okay for you to go to therapy. If you feel like you need to talk to someone about your mental state, also have a bit of an open door policy with the students so they know that they can come talk to me too. But I think in professional school, you're so, you're trained with that mentality. If I have to go, I have to get this done. And it's the people that came before me got it done. So it shouldn't be a reason as to why I can't. We don't think about the fact that you need to take care of yourself. You need to check in with yourself. You need to make sure that you can have that capacity to be empathetic because if you're not whole, it influences how you're able to interact with patients. I think that being transparent about that with the students in terms of their mental health. And I know for me, I have to check in often, like, am I in the place to where I can be empathetic when I go see a patient? Or if I'm not in the place where I can be, then I'll tell them, you know, I can't do a vaccine clinic this week. We have to shift the date because I don't want to influence or create a bad experience for any of the patients because my mental state is off. Like Precious said, we're human and we have to, you know, acknowledge that fact. So I think it helps to be transparent with the students that it is that we teach. It helps to promote the necessity of doing what it is that we need to do for ourselves in terms of mental health. The mental health industry is there for a reason, so we have to take advantage of that. I think I would also add to that, circling back, you know, reflecting on the last two statements by Precious and Dr. Jam is when I described the three facets being our healthcare workers' empathy, the community's empathy towards the healthcare workers, and then the, the organizational empathy towards the healthcare workers, I think it's really important to underscore that as individuals living in this world during this pandemic, we are all experiencing 
just a lot of hurt and there is a continuum of emotions that we experience. And even as healthcare workers, we see ups and downs and we have excitement because of vaccines, disappointment because we hear about new variants. There's uh, fear um, and, and sometimes anger when we see the the hurtful things that are being said to us or or about us as healthcare workers because we are trying to help to protect. And vaccines are available for our children, for example, and we're excited about that. There needs to be space to be able to debrief that. And even if it's amongst a few folks who are friends or, or whatnot, there has to be the space the people in the community also need space to be able to ask questions and debrief themselves. And so it becomes this cycle where each community does not have the space to be able to debrief, to ask questions, to to speak. Then it seems like they are pitted against each other. But we're not like we can't pit healthcare workers against the community members and and vice versa. Because it's really all of us together against the virus. And we have to come back to who the common problem is, and that's COVID-19. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, we are truly all in this together. And I think that continuum idea of where we are in our fight against COVID-19, sometimes it feels never ending. And that's when you do have to take that breath and say, what do I need to support myself? to support my community members, to support my family. And that is hard for us to do, I think, especially when the fatigue really sets in and when you're feeling those burdens from various parts of your life and remembering that we're all on that continuum together can be really challenging. Do you think there's a role for the healthcare system in supporting some of that debriefing? And whether that's for the community or for healthcare workers, do you see a role for the healthcare system in really structured debriefing or structured processing of what's happening in this pandemic? So as for a structured debriefing, I haven't seen it. There are these programs you can go to, you can call employee assistance, you can look at this module, but to actually be hands-on, I know we can't really get together in a setting to hash it out and really, you know, have that debrief, but it's so needed. I think a lot of patients as well as ourselves, we've lost the human touch during this pandemic. And I have to be honest, I hug my patients when they come in here because they need it. I need it. I need to connect with them on that level. So I think our organizations should make that a priority to where we can be in those spaces whether we are vaccinated or not. Because again, we need that. We need that healing. It's taken away a lot of that. And if we got into our professions to care for patients holistically, while we are whole beings and that has been chipped away from, we need to restore that. So again, going back to the employee wellness day that I had planned, we were going to Know, sit around in this group and listen to, you know, meditation music and just have talk about what our lives and whatever you wanted to share. But that was just at this level, our clinic level. I personally would like to see it at a higher level from our people, the higher ups that's in charge. 
yeah, you can give us bonus stimulus money and all of that. And that's great. And that's wonderful. And a free breakfast and free whatever. But I want to know that you really care for me as a soul, as a spirit, as a being. I agree with Precious. And I think it boils down to what Dr. Marcellin stated. We aren't robots. And I think that as institutions, we have to realize that because at some point, COVID-19 will not be prevalent, you know, at the point in which it is right now. And then we'll have to deal with the fact that X amount of people have now left the healthcare system because, you know, of the poor mental state that they're in because of the, the pandemic or because they're burnt out due to the pandemic. So we have to figure out how is it that we circumvent these things now? So how is it that we make mental health services readily available to individuals that are working? How is it that we try to figure out how to schedule in breaks for those individuals? How is it that we make their lives a little bit easier so that we don't end up in that position where they no longer want to be a part of the healthcare system? Or honestly, there are so many people that have left the healthcare system today because of the impact that COVID-19 has had. I can tell you of countless friends that have left. I can tell you of countless friends that told me, you know, in the next year, I will not be working in healthcare anymore. My physician friends, my pharmacist friends, my nurses, my nursing friends that said that they will no longer work in healthcare after the pandemic. And it's really because the pandemic has its own woes and the things that we've experienced with that. But it's really because of the fact that it, I don't know, and I don't know if anyone else on the podcast has felt like this, but it's kind of like Precious said, you could give me a pizza party. What does that mean for where I am right now, given the pandemic or where my mental state is right now, or the time I've had to take away from my family due to taking care of everyone else? Yeah, that's such a great point. Are you worried about what healthcare looks like on the other side of this pandemic? As we see people leave, as we see people grow exhausted or frustrated or look for different career options because they just can't be in the healthcare workforce anymore? Are you worried about what healthcare looks like on the other side of COVID-19? I don't know what it looks like on the other side, right? I'm worried about what it looks like today and what it looks like tomorrow before we can realistically think about the other side of this pandemic. It's very possible that before we can visualize what that looks like, we will be in a lot more trouble than we are right now. And I think little things healthcare organizations can do. We talked about having those structured debriefs and building in time off for the frontline healthcare workers who are doing this day in, day out. That's important. There are other things that have sort of creeped in and affected life for healthcare workers, like if you don't have a predominantly clinical schedule or if you have planned gaps in your clinical schedule, then there are suddenly 10,000 Zoom meetings on your schedule and they're back to back and people just assume that you can be at all of them and you have no space to think or to be creative, or to be productive if you are in a scholarly type of track. And that is affecting the academic clinicians whose currency is, is writing, but there's no time to think or write. It needs to be the culture of the organizations to be able to say, 
we're not going to require that you have a full schedule of meetings all day, whether you're in person or on Zoom, it, that doesn't matter. We're not going to book you from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. We're going to allow you to have space to think and write and be creative or just take time to journal for yourself and debrief or go to see your therapist or do the things that you need in order for you to get through these days and remain healthy and, and engaged with our workforce. There are a lot of our, our healthcare workers who are not only heavily engaged in the institution or the organization, but then at the same time, on their own time, are heavily engaged in community engagement work, which brings them joy, but also saps energy. Everything that you do outside of yourself is going to take energy. And how do we recognize the time that these healthcare workers are spending that is uncompensated? They're doing it because they want to help their communities, but it is in competition with whatever other required work they have to do. How can the healthcare organization recognize the value in that community work and maybe offset some of the other work? Like there are so many things that could be done if all of the people who are truly stakeholders were at the table, but oftentimes they're not. As we think about the future, I know we just talked about the fact that right now is concerning and, and there's challenges to being in the healthcare setting right now, not even on the other side of COVID-19. But as we look towards the future, what lessons can we take away from this experience? I think that the biggest can be one is necessary to make equity a priority. I think the Omicron variant and the South African variant that we had prior to with the Delta variant are obvious reasonings for that. And when making equity a priority, that we think about the fact that minoritized communities deserve the same advantages as those that are of the majority. I think that we also need to think about the fact that when we think about minoritized communities and then we think about minoritized healthcare professionals, we have to acknowledge the fact that everything that's done for minoritized communities should not be on the backs of those minoritized healthcare professionals. We have to think about the burnout that's associated with, like Dr. Marcellin said, this very necessary work that is doing this very necessary work that we want to do to help our communities. We have to think about the burnout that's associated with that, the mental health collateral. And then I think the biggest thing that we can learn from COVID-19 is just the respect and the space and the protected time that individuals in the healthcare industry deserve. I think that a lot of times, and maybe this is attributed to like Grey's Anatomy and different television shows, but uh, people can think that, you know, we are robots and that we do love being in the hospital every single second of the day, but we do not. We have lives, you know, we, we want to spend time with our families when I have time to regroup. And our mental health is also important. So I think that we can also learn that. So prioritizing the necessities. Do you think people are paying attention to that as we move hopefully towards a post-COVID world, that there has to be attention and time paid to healthcare workers' well-being, to the time that they need outside of seeing patients outside of the hospital? Do you see that happening? Yes, I do. As as we bring more awareness to different groups that are on the front line, we heard front line, front line, front line, front line, front line. But what did that look like? 
It just wasn't healthcare workers. It was sanitation workers, the housekeepers, food service workers. As we see, it has been a major collapse in food service workers, you know, where we get our entertainment and our enjoyment. But until we could see that in real time, we didn't understand the impact that it would have on our communities and and what we could go out and still do once we open back up. So just as healthcare providers or anyone in the field saying, hey, this is what it really looks like. It's not what it is on TV. We are not actors. We are not getting paid to sell you some storyline. But again, until they could see that and hear our experiences without being filtered due to the organizations that we work for. But hey, this is what's going on. This is what it looks like behind closed doors. This is how I feel. This is what I'm going through. And until they can understand that, those perspectives can be changed. Are there any last things that you'd like to leave our listeners with as we close out the conversation? We've talked about a lot of really important work that's happening in the community, in the healthcare setting, across our colleagues. Are there any things that you would like to stress for our audience? For me, my biggest takeaway, just being a nurse and working in all aspects of the nursing field, as healthcare professionals are taught to rehabilitate that patient to their normal level of functioning or closest to. But I think what this pandemic has taught us and what I gather from it is that um, it hit more mentally and spiritually for a lot of, not just patients, but for all of us. So how do we, we say we care for patients and each other holistically. What does that really look like? I don't challenge anyone to answer that question, but just as a self-reflection, what does that look like when you can't restore someone mentally, when you can't restore them spiritually, when you are trying to be this light in this dark world or during this dark time, what does that look like? What are we doing? Are we passing the time? Are we taking the time to just tap in? doesn't have to be much. Something is giving someone a cup of water that's, you know, been running around all day or allowing them a bathroom break. Again, what does the mental and spiritual aspect of what's going on in the world really look like? I agree with Precious. I think that, you know, I would state, one, making equity a priority and um, realizing what that means and what that looks like. When we think about the entire world, Two, remembering that, remembering the humanity. Um, I think that sometimes we can get so caught up in different aspects of COVID-19 that we forget about this just very essence of humanity in it. And I think there's a lot of power in being a good person. So I think like, uh, as, as we've stated throughout, as Precious just stated. So I think remembering the humanity and remembering the humanity in your counterpart, in your colleague, in your peer, and um, the importance of checking in, checking in with those people that work alongside of you. That's something I'm really big on. My research partner and I, we regularly say, hey, how you doing? You know, we check in, make sure everything's all right. And I think the biggest thing is the importance of advocacy. So advocating for, we can advocate for equity. We can advocate for minoritized groups. But more importantly, I think it's important that we don't forget to advocate for ourselves. I would like to... I think the the last thing that I would end on is a note of hope. While it is true that we have 
you know, we found ourselves almost 24 months into this pandemic and we're not seeing where the other side of it is just yet. And it's true that many of our healthcare workers are not okay. And it's true that our communities in the United States and across the world, don't forget the people outside of the United States where the majority of folks are not vaccinated because they have not had access to vaccines. This is what's causing the pandemic to continue to burn in our communities. But despite all of that, there is still hope, right? There is still the hope of having a person reach out to you weeks or months after you had a conversation with them, talking to them about what's in the vaccines and, and what does it mean for them, saying, oh, I finally went and got mine and I remembered that conversation that we had. There's hope in the person who came into the hospital and they were so sick and they're so young and you were so worried about whether or not they would make it out alive. And thanks to the grace of God and all of the scientific advances that we've had, that person was able to walk out, not the same as when they came in, but alive and able to look out to a life ahead of them. There is hope that with vaccines being available for younger folks, our children can find themselves in a situation where they are, most of them are able to learn in person and maybe get to have play dates again. There's hope that maybe we can, those of us who have family overseas, will we'll be able to see our families as more folks get vaccinated. There is hope that we have amazing scientists across the world who have been working together on this great problem and through unimaginable feats have been coming up with solutions to how to treat COVID-19 and how to prevent it and all of these things that people who had to experience the 1918-19 influenza pandemic did not have access to, right? And so we, I just want us to really think about the things that can still bring us hope. Oh, the last thing is how communities have just decided to advocate for themselves and despite multiple barriers and obstructions in their way and evidence of structural racism in policies have found ways to get vaccines to their, to their communities to organize on their own and take care of themselves. And that is just, for me, one of the most uplifting parts of this pandemic is that I got to work alongside phenomenal community organizers in this kind of work. And that brings me hope. Yeah, it's a it's a great note to end on. I think we're all sort of looking for spaces for hope to creep in sometimes and pointing them out is really, really important because I think sometimes when you're feeling all these things we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation, you can feel bogged down in that. And, and there is a lot happening that it, that should make us hopeful, that should you know, encourage us to look towards the future. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. Um, this has been a really great conversation. Just and I have a new life motto and it's, there's a lot of power in being a good person. I love that. This conversation has, if nothing else, definitely given me hope that we are going to get through this together as a community, 
as colleagues and and that there is a path forward. So thank you all so much for joining me today. And we'll leave it at that for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for joining me today to have this really important conversation about healthcare worker resiliency and vaccine hesitancy. And for those of you listening at home, we hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at netec.org. Or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Netech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.